uh, good morning, Stephen. How's it going? Hey, good morning. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, I feel like we have a lot to talk about this morning. <laughs> <laughs> you think so? Uh, yeah. It's, uh, we really do. Uh, crazy times. Polarized is an understatement. And, uh, Absolutely. I, so I, I did think it would be good to take a short break from our series in Genesis because I really wanted mm -hmm. us to think together about, uh, as, as Jesus followers, you know, how, how do we respond? Uh, mm -hmm. what, what should we care about right now? How, how should we treat each other regardless of election outcomes? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? But, you know, I guess just let me say right off the bat that I really uh, do appreciate your willingness to talk about all of this. Um, it really is more risky subject matter in light of the election and all that's gone on in the world over the past few months. Uh, I know this is just really tough territory for most people lately, if not everyone. And I'm just really encouraged uh, that we as a church uh, have decided to make some space for it. You know, I mean, when it comes to politics and specifically the relationship between, you know, the Republicans, Democrats, right versus left, mm -hmm. conservative, liberal, Trump, Pence versus Biden, however you want to frame this. Uh, yeah. Things, things do get a little tricky, don't they? And, and obviously, <laughs> we, you know, we all feel... The, the tensions that arise from the, the current state of things. But uh, my, my goal right from the start of, of this mini-series was, was to try to avoid the, the sort of the tired arguments of, of either side and, and zoom out instead and, and, and try and look beyond our own borders, beyond the comforts of empire, and, and look very directly at, at, at war and uh, the, mm -hmm. the atrocities that America as the superpower, along with her allies, have together in, inflicted on on millions of real people, regardless of which party has, has been in power at the time. Yeah, this way of looking at things has been very important to me actually for quite some time uh, and actually found its way into my art uh, a while back, specifically around 2015-ish, uh, I think it was, when I started painting the photorealistic battleships. Uh, and then funny enough, uh, kind of around that same time, I started using Snuggies in my work. Ah, uh, the dreaded Snuggies. I, <laughs> I, I actually remember visiting your studio probably for the first time and, and really, mm -hmm. I really hated them. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you're, you're, the not, only one. You're, not, you're not supposed to tell an artist that you hate their work, but uh, they're just really ugly, absurd things and, and actually quite dis disconcerting. And, and back then you were sort of stretching them out like a canvas. Uh, yeah. But uh, you know, but before we get ahead of ourselves, for those of you who don't know what a snuggie is, it's this as seen on TV fleece blanket with sleeves. Mm -hmm. It's a ridiculous novelty <laughs> object that allows you to sit on the couch and watch TV under a blanket, but your hands are free uh, to hold the remote control and eat popcorn and, and, and everything else. <laughs> uh, and most of you right now are probably thinking, Stephen and Eric, where the heck are you going with this? But <laughs> But, but yeah, actually, they were really absurd for me as well. Uh, and they represented and, and still represent uh, in my work a ridiculous level of, of decadence, right? So almost a, a sinister decadence. Uh, I saw the Snuggies as, as symbols of, of where, we, we had, where we were as a nation and, and kind of where we had gotten to as a nation, uh, essentially reaching very strange levels of comfort within our borders, uh, right? Uh, and then when I began painting the battleships um, and viewing them kind of as like sea monsters uh, of our own creation, uh, we made them to conquer uh, chaos and evil in the world, but actually just ended up bringing about more destruction, even to the point uh, of echoing ancient ideas uh, of um, the, the gods of, of chaos mm -hmm. and evil, which have long been associated with the sea. 
then I started realizing that the Snuggies and the battleships weren't so far removed from each other. Uh, I started to think about the levels of violence that have to exist mm -hmm. on or outside of our borders in order to allow levels of absurd comfort or Snuggies uh, to exist within our borders. And, and when you start to think right. of things along those lines, well, I, I think that that's a whole different conversation. Yeah, it, it's it's funny because I, you know, like I said, I really did hate the Snuggies as objects, but then you, you did something interesting. You, you, I remember you took the, the Snuggie and you painted it photorealistically and almost with the sort of Renaissance painting feel. Yeah, uh, I think it was how I painted uh, the, the, the fabric or the, or the drapery of it, yeah. And, and, and when I saw that, somehow I understood what you were trying to say. And, and now I, mm -hmm. I can't help but equate the, the pairing of, of the, the Snuggie paintings with the battle, battleship <laughs> paintings with mm -hmm. the symbols of the whore and the, and the beast from, from Revelation. Uh, and, mm. you know, John talks about the whore or the, the comforts or sensuous or commercial side of the empire right, riding on the back of the, the military might of, of the empire. Yeah, right. So Snuggies exist only because battleships exist. And uh, the battleship series was actually uh, titled Leviathan. So literally Perfect. this idea of the beast. Uh, and, you know, obviously that's just a stand-in for uh, military might. And, and to, to bring it back to what John says about the, the sort of violence and the decadence of empire that sort of go together, mm -hmm. he, he says, come out from her. And mm -hmm. I, I think uh, we, we can't do that as long as we are really devoted to our, our system as it stands, uh, where all our, our hope or all our devastation, um, which comes out a lot in election, uh, election mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. uh, is really sort of invested in, in these sort of mechanisms which are, are used by the empire to control the conversation and, and shape our imaginations. Yeah, and by mechanisms, you mean the poles of debate. So mm -hmm. quite simply, the idea of liberal versus conservatives or Democrats versus Republicans, or, or uh, at least uh, the acceptance of the system as the only reality that could ever possibly exist. Uh, and it's funny because it, at least with America, I think, well, what happens is that the history of, of Christianity and the church and the gospel gets funneled into this very narrow and relatively new, if we're being quite honest, uh, political structure, which is actually, uh, I mean, absurd when you start to think about it. Yeah, I mean, it, right. It's a strange thought that this, this ancient tradition can only be expressed meaningfully through these sort of established uh, American channels. And uh, many, many Republicans will claim, you know, the moral high ground for themselves. Many Democrats will do the same thing. And Christianity sort of gets co-opted by the system. And, and we're told, you know, the, the Christian tradition must be expressed through one side or the other. Uh, and, and the problem with that is that in, in America today, we, we have a lot of, uh, you know, fierce debates between these two sides that, that feel worlds apart. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times the debate itself is actually a way of drawing very, very narrow parameters around the conversation. And, and mm -hmm. so I think this is why political uh, dissident Noam Chomsky has, has pointed out that the, the, the and I've, I've quoted this before, the, the trouble mm -hmm. with dictators like Saddam Hussein is that they never really understood the power of debate to control the population. Mm -hmm. You just have to set up the poles of debate close enough together and, and then let people have this very fierce, sometimes very antagonistic, polarized debate. And what that does is it establishes the limits of acceptable thought. 
-hmm. And then anything outside those limits of acceptable thought is just sort of considered, well, it's just irrelevant, isn't it? Or, or even better than the sort of the lunatic, the lunatic fringe. And, and that, that way, what you're doing is you're, you're sort of instructing or, or conditioning people not to look where you don't want them to look. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Even now, just talking about Snuggies and Battleships and the whore riding on the back of the beast, I already feel like we're stepping outside of some kind of sanctioned territory. It feels a little crazy. Uh, and to be honest, a bit like a conspiracy theory. Uh, so how do we think differently outside the poles of debate, but also in a way that doesn't come across as the ravings of a completely complete madman? <laughs> but but these are the ravings of a madman. Touche. So anything that that doesn't fall in line with the standard narratives can can easily be written off as sort of conspiracy theory. So so that conspiracy theory becomes like this four letter intellectual four letter word. You sort of you say you drop that word and it's, it's you know you you shut down further exploration. But if you think about it, the prophets who were, you know, out in the wilderness, outside the city gates, in, in other words, they were outside the limits of acceptable thought, mm -hmm. speaking from the margins, and they spoke their prophetic words against the centers of power um, in, in, in their society. Well, well, guess what? They were obviously deemed the sort of, you know, the, the lunatic fringe. Mm -hmm. But then if, if all our discussions and all our thinking, you know, only ever sort of follows the very carefully follows the contours of our society's discourse uh, and if all of our conversations are, are just sort of reinscribing just sort of reinscribing of the normal mainstream mm -hmm. conversation then what sort of ha we probably don't have a prophetic voice right right so on, on that point uh, in the sermon series you talk about jesus as a political dissident who actively spoke out against both the pharisees and the, the sadducees and he didn't align himself with with either party uh, but was deeply critical of both he spoke his parables against the established structures right. of, of power uh, so essentially jesus steps outside uh, of the poles of debate and offers his way uh, as an alternative way of being in the world uh, one that allows us as his followers to think and act uh, outside of our society's firmly established parameters yes so so back to your question how how do we how do we tell between being a prophet on the mm -hmm. fringe and actually being the lunatic fringe? Yeah, sure, right. Uh, yeah, I mean it's a great point, and, and I think um, I mean we do have to tell the difference between these two, and I think it's worth exploring a bit. I know you quoted uh, Wendell Berry quite a lot uh, during the sermon series, and I know that you and I both respect Noam Chomsky, and I guess. I bring them up because I think they're both excellent examples of people who sometimes get labeled as crazy conspiracy theorists, or at least I know that's uh, that's pretty true for Chomsky. Sure. So, so when it comes to what we're talking about, all, all this stuff about uh, using the poles of debate to manufacture consent within our society and uh, the bipartisan cooperation when it comes to to war and, and military spending. And then on top of that, you throw in uh, the ideas about the media, who, who you're saying are, are mostly complicit in, in all of this. Mm. I, I mean, it's easy to go around just kind of rattling off facts and figures about all of these things um, and, and then sound conspiratorial as you're doing <laughs> that. Uh, so I think it's important that we mention 
uh, a few concrete examples of, of how this has played out uh, in real time uh, and continues to, to be played out uh, you know, almost on a daily basis. Sure, I, no, I, I agree. But um, you know, first of all, I, I think it would actually be helpful to clarify what we mean by conspiracy, because you've used that word a, a few mm -hmm. times. Is it, is it conspiracy just people getting together and planning things? Because if, if that's a conspiracy, then every time, say, the leaders of the church get together to plan something, mm -hmm. that's a conspiracy. So pretty much everything becomes a conspiracy. So this isn't, that's not particularly helpful. Um, right. I think a conspiracy theory would suggest that, uh, and by the way, this, this is not what I'm saying, but uh, a conspiracy theory would suggest that there are people within the major public institutions who are working mm -hmm. to subvert those same institutions. That there are mm -hmm. people in those institutions who are working around the back of them, uh, mm -hmm. sort of working independently of them in, in order to undermine them. And, and sure. that very rarely happens uh, because as Chomsky points out, he says, look, the institutions themselves are, are, are too powerful mm -hmm. and they just won't tolerate that sort of thing for very long. So actually, uh, there's actually very little in the way of real conspiracy going on in, in American uh, public life. And um, I think that's that's why this conversation about the the military industrial complex and, and sort of media cooperation and the poles of the debate being established as they are uh, is it, it's not even a theory as such, let, let alone a conspiracy. This this is just normal institutional analysis. This isn't about people working in the shadows and doing things in secret to undermine these institutions from within. We're just asking questions about what these institutions do you know how do they function how do they survive mm. how, how do they perpetuate themselves so in, in in many ways this is sort of the exact opposite of conspiracy theory because we're just assuming that these institutions are going to act and behave in their own interests and mm -hmm. it would be very strange if they didn't it would be strange and i think that's that's helpful uh to outline that i think we we are asking questions about how these institutions function and survive. And you're saying that all of this is very public and it's not a shadowy secret. So with that right. in mind, uh, I think it might be helpful if you could just give a few examples of how the parties work together, uh, both the Republican and Democratic parties work together uh, in the service of, of the military industrial complex, seeing that we are focusing on war uh, and you have been focusing on war in the sermon series. Because we know that they do. The, the two parties do cooperate, uh, and it's it's not a conspiracy theory, like we said. It's something that's out there. It's on public record uh, for all the world to see. Sure. Um, so you know, looking at military spending is is actually, I think, a really good way of of seeing how this is played out in real life. And I think the the very bipartisan nature of this issue becomes crystal clear. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, in in 2017. Um, Trump decided he wanted to spend an extra $55 billion over what Obama had spent the year before in, in mm -hmm. his Pentagon budget. Mm -hmm. But Congress said, wait, wait, that's not enough. So they ended up giving him $80 billion extra per year instead. So the original 55, oh, instead of the original 55 that, that he'd asked for, which amounted right. to something like I think it was $700 billion that year. Totally. So yeah. th there, were no, there were no talk shows no endless editorials, no public hand-wringing, no debate. It was just this seamless transaction. They, they just gave it to him. Mm -hmm. the, the vast majority, and this is the important bit, right? The, the vast majority of Republicans 
vast majority of Democrats supported this, with only a handful of dissenting voices from either side. Mm -hmm. This is deeply ironic, right? Because if you actually think that Trump is so dangerous and so unpredictable, mm -hmm. the last thing you would do with your power is give him $700 billion to go and spend on more bombs. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, then in 2018, uh, in another round of negotiations, Nancy Pelosi's office fired off an email to the House Democrats explaining that, look, in our negotiations, congressional Democrats have been fighting for increases in funding for defense. Chuck Schumer's mm -hmm. office did the same thing. They said, look, we, we fully support uh, President Trump's Defense Department's request. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then in a, in a final round of negotiations, right, right as they were on the, the verge of impeaching President Trump, they approved a $760 billion budget mm -hmm. as they're trying to impeach him. Again, deeply ironic, right? Yeah. So I really think that this helps us to see that this is a truly bipartisan issue, or, or really there's, there's just one, one party. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the, you can call them the re republic rats or the, the demicons. So they're they're, they're, they're mm -hmm. united when it comes to running this economy of death. Right? Follow mm -hmm. the money, as they say. It's, it's disconcerting, uh, I think, uh, to realize how streamlined these processes are. Uh, yeah. I know people are, are always discussing uh, how it seems to be impossible to get anything done in America because of the disagreement <laughs> between the, the, the Democrats and, right. and the Republicans. Uh, but what you're describing is a well-oiled machine. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but also, I, I want to be open about the fact that it's easy for any of us, that any one of us, to get bogged down, first of all, with all of these political facts and figures. Most people don't even have enough time to keep up with all of this. And, and then secondly, if you do start to piece it all together and keep up with it, then you will very quickly, we find ourselves uh, overwhelmed by the sheer size of the problem it's it's difficult to wrap our heads around the scale of the violence and destruction and death which at times seemed just huge too huge to challenge or to even bother with yeah so i think we all experienced that and this this is what walter brueggemann calls the imperial imagination and the imperial imagination says that this this is how things are this this is the way they've always been this is how things will always be and, and so when you do look out to the horizon it, it's all there is as far as the eye can see and it does seem impossible to even imagine a world any other way mm -hmm. but then think about something like the transatlantic slave trade as it was you know utterly tied in with economics business government politics much like Eisenhower described the military, if you remember that quote from Eisenhower mm -hmm. describing the military industrial complex, it, it was also woven into the very fabric of our society. And in those conditions, pe people couldn't have imagined the world without it. But then along comes William Wilberforce and his friends, and they had this sort of prophetic imagination that allowed them to think outside the limits of their own society and imagine something very different. Mm -hmm. um, but but obviously this does take time. I think it takes work and effort. And, and you're right. Most people, you know, most people are just trying to survive. I mean, they don't have time to investigate all of these things in detail. And so I think when the church doesn't know about this, um, mm -hmm. well, that's just a result of people like me failing at our failing at our task. 
Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I really love this idea of uh, the imperial imagination uh, versus the uh, prophetic imagination. And when you talk about things like that, Stephen, it actually makes me realize that this conversation isn't necessarily tied to this specific election no. or, or, or the outcomes of, of this specific election. It feels like this has to be more of an ongoing discussion, uh, one that actually shapes us as a church uh, moving forward and perhaps sets us up to lean into a more prophetic role. Yeah, it, look, it has to be a more sustained conversation. And, and actually, just with the brief discussions I've had with, with a few people so far in the last couple of weeks, I, I think people mm -hmm. have the same sense you have about it, that there's going mm -hmm. to be a learning curve for all of us. We're not sure mm -hmm. where this will take us. But we're going to be, if, if we're going to be a prophetic community, then, then all of this has to be part of the things that we're thinking about. We need to mm -hmm. talk about it because the next time they try to sell us a war, and it's not a question of if, right? It's a question of when. Mm -hmm. We want to be able to speak to our society and point towards an alternative path, regardless of whether or not they listen to us. And, and, I, and by the way, most prophets are not listened to. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, so whether the warm. government, right, yeah. no, I mean, yeah, uh, here we go. So, I mean, whether the government or media are selling a foreign war or sowing dispute within our borders, the church just can't fall in line. And I guess that's what I hear you, you, you that you're saying. Right. Uh, if we're really going to take the gospel seriously, we have to zoom out a bit and understand that the way we think about these things and the way we talk and the way we act might actually look drastically different than trending norms. Uh, this makes me think right. about uh, Jackery Kelly, the leader of the Black Lives Matter chapter in Northern Utah, who you mentioned last Sunday. Yeah. Uh, you spoke about how she went out of her way to contact the head of the local Proud Boys chapter. And then they actually ended up meeting to talk, uh, give, giving a joint press conference uh, that condemned white supremacy and now they're dreaming up ways to push for prison reform. Yeah, I mean, she's my hero at the moment. I mean, it's, yeah. it, I mean, it's pretty amazing, actually. It's, it's a very, look, it's a very simple act, right, of, of reaching out, talking to someone. But mm -hmm. look what happens when we do that. Uh, they actually start a friendship. Imagine that, mm -hmm. you know. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's just very difficult to think like this because we're always so sure that we, we know what the other side is about. We've been right. told by all our trusted news sources that's what they're about, and it's almost um, it's almost unanimous. So so it, mm. it's, it's got to be true, right? Only mm. it isn't. And so for Jacqueline mm -hmm. Kelly to break away from the herd like that, to sort of step outside the bounds of acceptable thought, to shake off the group thing, I mean that that mm -hmm. takes some insight, and I, I think uh, that's tremendous courage as well, actually. Yeah, it's it's inspiring because. We might not jump to admit it or, or even be fully aware of it in ourselves, but I think it's safe to say that many of, of us, if not all of us, have at some point demonized the other before any conversations have even oh. got going. Oh, we, we, we've, we've all done it more often than we yeah. would get to admit, yeah. Absolutely. And I really feel that, at least in, in New York, uh, for most people, myself included, and a lot of friends who I've talked to, uh, we've all really struggled. I, I think it's hard to think clearly when you're walking around every day feeling constantly triggered. Uh, so uh, how do we push past that? Or and is it even possible? 
so yeah you, you you're so right i mean we are we are all guilty of having done this so i i think um i think we should be suspicious when when pretty much everyone around us is saying the same thing and just as a general rule of thumb when when you feel this weird sort of pressure to fall in line to hold the same opinion as everyone else i think it's it's important it's healthy at that moment to, to question that um mm -hmm. especially when that opinion is working to sort of dehumanize and demonize huge you know large swathes of, of people yeah. um and so it's in those moments we should ask you know am i just being manipulated um into sort of hating other people you know because it's it's, it's often it's often very emotive a, a lot of feelings driven more by sort of rumor and vague impressions than, than anything in reality mm -hmm. uh, so so someone like uh jackie kelly uh, has has to first ask that question what well, what if pretty much everything that everyone is telling me about these other people isn't mm -hmm. actually true so she already sounds crazy, right? This, this seems like an absurd question, but she mm -hmm. has to be able to entertain that as a serious possibility. Otherwise, uh, she would never have taken the next step, which is, which is about you know, actually going to the source. Never mind what everyone else is telling me about these people. Go to the source. Listen intently. Yeah, and I think um, the other... Uh, um, route or, or option would be to just become completely absorbed in the monoculture monoculture of thought right. or at least we start to align ourselves with this idea of an intellectual monoculture that relies on massive generalizations and completely lacks any kind of subtlety and i would say sustainability um so which actually brings me uh kind of back around to wendell berry uh and some of his ideas from his book the unsettling uh, of america i know like i said before you did quote him a few times throughout this sermon uh, mini series and i think there are some really interesting ideas at play here that actually line up well with his thoughts on healthy versus unhealthy agriculture yeah wendell berry is uh an amazing prophetic voice when it comes to drawing these these direct links between sort of the rise of big business industrial sort of agriculture uh, in, in America and then how the, the negative effects of this have, have sort of rippled out into American culture at large. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not just doesn't just get contained within agriculture. And, and as the title of the book suggests, also uh, ultimately leading to a very real unsettling of America, which I, I think we're all feeling right now sort of every day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so there's an interesting concept in the book, Barry asserts that the entire industrial agricultural movement came about uh, sort of piggybacking on the on this one simple idea that humans needed to be freed from the drudgery of food production, and so began an enormous concerted effort to divorce people uh, from the land and from the responsibility of thinking sustainably about food and physical work. And, and, and then also the health of their communities to the point uh, now where this idea has rippled out into broader culture, as you said, including politics. And so something very similar uh, has happened with the creation of, of, of the enormous mechanisms of mass news media and social media, uh, which work together to establish monocultures of thought. And in that context, uh, we as individuals 
have very similarly uh, been freed from the drudgery of thinking for ourselves. And I fear that, that if we buy into all the trappings mm, of yeah. today's intellectual monocultures, that we may um, cut ourselves off from more sustainable and subtle ways of viewing others and the world. Um, and then on top of that, we also uh, are, are cut off from ideas of what community might look like on any kind of manageable human scale. Uh, so, I mean, this all just kind of comes down to uh, a concerted sort of mass unsettling uh, where we all tend to feel disconnected, dehumanized, and mm. constantly caught up in um, what could be described as this oversimplified headspace of us versus them. Yeah, I, I, look, I think this is really spot on. And I know, you know, we, we've spoken in depth about these these ideas lately and, and specifically how they relate to not, not just peace on a grand global scale, but, but to, to, to bring things close to home, peace amongst ourselves, our, our friends, mm -hmm. our families, our loved ones during, during the, these times of very deep societal division. And so one of the ideas that I, I keep sort of circling back around to is, is this, uh, and this is 100% from Wendell Berry, is, is that when we, when we find ourselves gripped with this sort of deep identity crisis or feelings of being disconnected, dehumanized, sort of isolated, hopeless, powerless, feelings that, that work together to cause any of us to perhaps lash out at those we disagree with. Well, the only real antidote to those feelings is this very deep commitment to place and a deep rootedness within a community of people. And when we, we do that and, and find our identities firmly rooted in community, then, then slowly from a place of love and respect for each other, and from a place of commitment rather than this sort of cancel culture, then, then I think we can start to approach each other in, in healthier, healthier ways. Uh, that's really beautifully put. Uh, so all you, that you've just said reminds me of, of two quotes, uh, again from Wendell Berry, that I think fit perfectly with what you're saying and remind me that, that a big part of this is actually reclaiming human scale in light of all of the enormous mm. mechanisms in our society. So Wendell Berry says, there can be no such thing as a global village. No matter how much one may love the world as a whole, one can live fully in it only by living responsibly in some small part of it. Yeah, that, that's a great quote. So as, as we talk about having a prophetic voice and speaking out against war and justice and the, the sort of political divisions in our country, uh, like, like we said earlier, look, it is easy to start feeling overwhelmed and powerless and feel like these things are just impossibly huge and and, and so we, we have to we have to remind ourselves that you know whatever we do if it's going to have any lasting sustainable impact it's going to have to first first of all play out and grow from within our communities um, mm -hmm. you know it's interesting to me that that jesus strategy is not to try to seize control of the mechanisms of power in his, his own day the, the, the sanhedrin the temple the throne he, he doesn't he doesn't trust his kingdom to uh, the political options that the Sadducees and Pharisees put, put before him. He, he thinks he can change the fabric of all our lives if he calls the 12 disciples and he forms them into this prototype Christian community. So, so Christ himself models this, which I think is, is beautiful. And his kingdom starts locally. Uh, and I, just, I love how that overlaps with ideas of um, 
sustainable organic farming that you know that <laughs> Wendell Perry is pushing the, the 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 whole time and sort of this idyllic pastoral um, thing that's going on, which I think we can all um, well get on board with to some point. But um, you know, so Jesus spends most of his time uh, on Earth. Uh, is actually a quite a short amount of time on earth uh eating and drinking and being with people right. uh so so here's a, here's another Wendell Berry quote which i think I, I i would feel sad if i didn't mention or at least uh sure. share so he says past the scale of the human our works do not liberate us they confine us and then he goes on to say once we build beyond a human scale uh, once we conceive ourselves as titans or as gods we are lost in magnitude we cannot control or limit what we do if we have built towering cities we have raised even higher the clouds of megadeth if people are as grass before god they are as nothing before their machines and i, and I think this brings us back full circle you know we we live in a society that has long move beyond human scale in, in a society fueled by war and, and we're, we're as nothing before our machines, as, as he puts it. And, and while all of this is sort of playing out in the periphery of our vision or, or just behind the scenes, we, we find ourselves embroiled in, in debates that are manufactured to capture 99.9% .9 of our attention, even as these, these sort of brutal acts of violence are, are planned and enacted as truly bipartisan, united efforts. Uh, but behind the scenes. Um, so, so don't get me wrong, this, this is an issue of good versus evil, just not in the ways that we might think. This is life and, a life and death situation, but not in the ways that we've been told every election cycle. Because regardless of which party's in power and who we have as president, we are called to live our lives in, in this new way outside of those poles of the debate because we believe Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. Thank mm -hmm. you.